Hi, and welcome to another version, another episode of the Boulder Bolding with Alec Tsukatos. We are going to step out with another one of the strategies of a steady state economy. We're actually going to be combining two of them, both of which has to do with land. To remind, one of the first strategies that we, Alec, laid out uh, several sessions ago was to shift tax away from people, labor, and capital, and onto land. A second one that is related to that, and we'll, we'll explore that relationship a lot here, is stop treating the scarce as if it weren't, and mainly the scarce is what's in the ground, water, minerals, and stop treating the non-scarce as if it were. And just to remind, I want to uh, bring back a statement by uh, Kenneth Bolding that we're naming this podcast after, which I thought was appropriate and speaks of kind of the humor or the wisdom of of this uh, gentleman. But he talks about, uh, apparently wrote an article called The Economics of the Coming Spaceship Earth. And so he talks about two different kinds of economies. Now, we're used to talking about economies in terms of neoliberal or socialism or capitalism. But he described two different economies, really the, the stark choices for us, as one, the cowboy economy, in which the, in the cowboy economy, if you run out of supply, well, you can just expand. And you, if you run out, you can just expand and go somewhere else. In a spaceship economy... By contrast, what we are primarily concerned with is stock maintenance. In other words, you don't have a limited supply anymore. In fact, you have, in many cases, a scarce supply. So when it comes to water, minerals, well, you can't go on a spaceship and go get water somewhere else. So I think uh, some of our discussion today is going to be making that contrast between cowboy economy and spaceship economy. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Alec, and we're going to talk about the problem of land and land ownership and land use. So Alec, I'm going to turn it over to you. So this notion of uh, scarcity, the way that um, economists define scarcity is that the, ma- the demand for something is uh, greater than the supply. So whenever the demand is greater than the supply, then there is scarcity. Before the Industrial Revolution, land and its products were not scarce because you can actually move from one place to another and uh, your consumption of any particular part of the earth whether it's a forest, whether it's fish, whether it's the air, whether it's the water, will not deprive somebody else from any of those, uh, of those resources. However, in a full world, or the, the same thing can be said about a spaceship Earth, it's the same thing as a full world, then whatever you take out of the Earth then somebody else gets deprived. 
it's terribly important to make that uh, that distinction because in the past we could behave the way we're behaving now and the costs would be minimal on the other hand with the coming of the industrial revolution where the productive capacity of the economy increased very much indeed then you couldn't continue operating this way so for example with the notion of a spaceship. When uh, human beings build spaceships, in order to run these spaceships, they had to have batteries. But you, know, you can use the batteries only for a certain period of time because then they would be exhausted. And that's why we had to invent uh, solar panels to go with the spaceship so that they could have a continuous input of energy that would be a substitute, obviously a much better substitute than, uh, than the batteries. Here's the, the thing that Herman Daly argues in this uh, article called Use and Abuse of the Natural Capital Concept. Economists use the term capital in two sets of meanings. One to mean a stock, so a stock of something. You have a stock of machinery, you have a stock of natural resources, you have a stock of labor, you have a stock of knowledge, and that stock can produce an income. So a lake, for example, which is a stock, can produce a set of fish per year. It can produce only a given amount of fish per year without changing the stock of the lake. It's very, very important to continue to have fish, to see to it that we don't touch the capital, we don't touch the, the, the stock. And that's the difference between stock and income. Income is a flow concept. Stock is a concept that has to do with a certain amount of something that can generate something else. So, you can use up a, a forest. You can, you can force it to produce so much income that then it stops producing income. There is a tendency for economists to then, uh, when the issue of the earth and the deterioration of the earth, etc., came up as uh, an idea and as something really major, they decided that they had to uh, start talking about the natural environment. And they made, however, a very, very important mistake. And that's the case in all of the textbooks of economics that were used up to very recently, that we, in economics, we have to incorporate the ecology. In economics, we have to incorporate the ecology which is topsy-turvy. Obviously, there has to be an incorporation, but the incorporation has to be that economics has to be incorporated in the ecology. That is to say, the ecology is a much bigger sphere, and economics must uh, uh, submit to the rules of, uh, of ecology and not the other way around. See, this is... This is something that I think is terribly important 
to start talking about something that is rarely talked about, and that is the arrogance of the economics profession, that it sees itself as by far better than any other of the social disciplines. And that's why, by the way, the only Nobel Prize that is given in the social disciplines is economics. There is no Nobel Prize for psychology. There is no Nobel Prize for uh, sociology. There is no Nobel Prize for uh, other kinds of disciplines, anthropology, for example. You know, that's because there is a diminution of and uh, an arrogance towards uh, these other disciplines. Yeah, well, uh, Daly mentions this in this article that uh, he said what you brought, what you have is kind of a chicken and the egg problem. Is our natural ecosystem subordinate to economic systems, or is it vice versa? the The bigger question is, can it be? And he really focuses in on that the whole problem with looking at how to use natural capital, natural resources, is that it's been financialized. Um, yes. It converts natural capital into fin financial capital, which is always expecting a gain without paying a cost and counting as income or profit. Or interest. Yes. So natural capital gets expressed as a sum of money, financial capital, and judged the value of natural resources based on its ability to generate monetary profit and income. The, the irony of this is he says, well, you know, natural resources, what he calls natural capital, doesn't care about human ideas about profit, economics, and especially interest. Yes, you know, that's it, right. It's altogether indifferent to... to yeah, to your analogy of the fish in the lake, it's like, the fish really aren't interested in your concept of interest. They can only produce a certain amount of new fish. Without destroying the capacity to produce yes. new fish. Yes. That's the thing. Correct. Correct. That's the thing. What has emerged, in other words, is that we've created a scarcity with respect to nature that wasn't there before because of our overindulgence over attempting to get out of nature more than it can provide without destroying uh, the natural environment. On the other hand, we treat, we treat as scarce things that are not intrinsically scarce. This is terribly important to understand. And one of the major ones uh, that Professor Boulding uh, dealt with, of course, and it's one of the most important ones, is education. Once the knowledge is available, we can duplicate it in a way that uh, everybody can have it. There is no limit to how many people you can educate. There is no scarcity of resource. There's always more supply available than uh, the demand. And mm -hmm. so we have treated nature as if there isn't scarcity, and we've treated education as if there is scarcity. So it's altogether topsy-turvy. Right. 
Yeah, so we, you and I can read a Shakespearean play without paying anything to any family uh, of Shakespeare. Is this part of the dilemma of the internet in, in which, you know, now we have information that can be available without somebody monopolizing it, and yet yes. we have these big uh, tech companies, Facebook, right. Google, That's Amazon, right. that are doing exactly that, trying to monopolize. Not trying to be very successful. They started, uh, that's their model, right? is to, is, uh, is, is to do that. So now we have the capacity, uh, after printing, after the internet, after uh, publishing and all of that, we have the capacity to have everybody have access to uh, not just information, but, uh, but an education, because information can be fa false. So it's terribly important to see to it that, the, that what we transmit to other people is tested for its truth value, its uh, value for uh, contributing to human well-being. Right, and this has been part of the issue with uh, Facebook, and, and, well, I think of Facebook especially, that they're saying, look, uh, we're, we're just a medium, you know, we're, we're not the we're message. We're a platform, as Yeah, they we're say. just a platform. Um, so it's not our job to be guardian of information. And it's truthfulness, that's right. Yeah. Yes. yes. So these are, these are the kinds of issues, and, and yet several years back there was quite a discussion. I haven't really heard much of it since then, but just about free access on the, on the Internet. And actually the certain... Um, setups of the internet were for exactly that. There were free versions of Microsoft Word, not pirating, but, um, yeah. you know, du uh, duplicating that very thing in which nobody was monopolizing it and trying to make a profit out of it. So, well, these are the kinds of issues, yes, but this is the, what you're talking the, about. There is a profit, sorry to interrupt, but there is a profit to be made by creating the new knowledge, right? Just like creating a new uh, a new drug, for example, or creating a new knowledge that leads to you know energy being gotten from the sun. Right. So the person that puts effort into and intelligence and resources into producing something new uh, should be rewarded for that. There's no question uh, right. uh, about that. Then, however, you know, after a certain period of time, this gets to be into the public realm. Right. So there is no scarcity. He, uh, Boulding always made uh, uh, the distinction between research and education. Research is producing new knowledge. Education is distributing that knowledge very widely. The question then becomes is not to monetize the, the earth. Right. Because if you monetize the earth, then you fall into the trap of saying, well, if you monetize the earth, I can find a different way, a faster way uh, of making a profit. And that is cutting down uh, the whole forest and then putting the money that I made into the stock market and uh, make a, a killing that way. Much faster money making and greater money making than actually saving the forest. Right. So if you monetize it, uh, you're actually contributing to the, dis the, the destruction of the earth. Correct. So 
The question then becomes, well, what will take the place of price as a regulator? You know, because price can uh, regulate under certain circumstances and well. That is to say, the higher the price, the less right. you use it. Right. You know, so you can reduce the amount of, of the use of something by uh, putting a price on its head. But in this case, what uh, some economists, including uh, Daily. Uh, Daily, suggest is that we have another method of putting a limit, and that is a quota. Okay. We can put a quota. You say, this is how many crabs you can fish. And this, this is already happening. I have a friend, right. a friend of mine who is a fisherman in Alaska. And that's right. They have, they have pretty strict... Uh, regulations as when they can fish commercially and how exactly. many they can uh, catch. And it's for the obvious reason. It's like, well, if you want to do this next year and, and a year, the year after that, that. And your children. Yes. And your grandchildren ad infinitum. Yes, absolutely. And this, this is a, a real phenomenon because initially all these fishermen objected because they tend to be just like people who, uh, you know, have their family tradition to uh, be miners or family right. tradition to be in the business of timber, for example. You know, they tend to be very individualist as a, as a culture, and right. it remains in the family. But they were eventually convinced that it's actually in their own interest and in the interest of their own children if they want to continue. Correct. With this business, yes. that they need to uh, to stop. That anymore, uh, it's not uh, possible to continue it for your children if you don't stop at a certain level. Now, right. Now here's here's yes. uh, Daly's definition of income. He says it's based on the maximum amount that can be consumed this year, without reducing the capacity. That's right to produce the same amount next year. That's right. In That's other right. words, income is by definition sustainable. And the whole reason for income accounting is to avoid impoverishment by inadvertent consumption of capital. That's exactly right. And that's where that's we're exactly. at the crisis. We that's are at a crisis right oh, now. We have been for some <laughs> time now. It's like we are yeah. impoverishing the consumption of na natural capital is what he calls it. And, you know, one of the um, causes of that fundamental category mistake, the real fundamental one, is that the literature of economics, certainly in the whole of the 20th century, where people would get Nobel Prizes for you know, in economics, right, right. was that they had a production function that was that had two ingredients only. One was capital, and the other one was labor. So you had a production function that abstracted from the natural, natural resources. How could you possibly have production <laughs> without natural resources, even though you use them all the time? That's because there was an implicit 
sense that the natural capital would always be there yes. so we don't need there is no scarcity Cowboy. and therefore we need we don't need to attend to it right we don't it's, need to take it into consideration in our equations right. it's cowboy, cowboy economics it's not like only, if, if yeah. our cattle if our herd consumes all the the grass in this land we'll, we'll just move over to the next plot yes. of land yeah. over here because it's wide open west you know and you say to yourself, you know, this happened even today with respect to China. Well, you know, because they they grew so very, very fast uh, over the last uh, 35, 40 years, do I know, that they've consumed two kinds of, uh, of things. Both had to do with the environment. One is, you know, what they had as a resource. And the other one is the capacity of nature to transform pollution into something that can right. uh, actually be uh, be good for people to breathe. Right. Uh, so, so what do they do? What has uh, have the Chinese done? Well, they were gone to Africa not to buy oil or not to buy vegetables or not to buy this and then the other, but to buy the land that produces these things. Right. So they, right. They, they, the cost of, of them becoming rich is that uh, it reduces the capacity of the Africans to themselves uh, develop. And so they imitated the imperialism of... Uh, that's right. The, the All in the name of, of good communism, of course. Yes. You know, oh, yeah. Because yeah. China, like uh, Russia, but China much, much more successfully, have become state capitalists. You know, right. They put an enormous amount of, of emphasis on growth and on, uh, on profit. So we have that's, the... that's, by the way, up to now what we have... Sorry to interrupt. Oh, but sorry. What we have uh, talked about is... Attending to nature as uh, having extrinsic value, that is to say, value for us. And then, of course, that doesn't take into consideration nature as having intrinsic value. Okay, and that's something he talks about in the article, which is very important. It's very important. Is and, that, and I think what he means by that is there's a value that you just can't, neatly packaged into an economics. <laughs> yes, you're, you're, I mean, you can discover it very readily. Your dog or your cat provides you with love, with affection, with humor, with all sorts of things, and you never consider what the value of the dog is to your profit. Right. You know, right. Uh, how much meat he can produce or how much uh, fur he can produce. There is an intrinsic value, just like the intrinsic dignity of a human being. is not to be, a human being is not to be valued as just what he can provide you in the form of profit. Right. That doesn't mean that you can't use another person, use without abusing. That's, that's the distinction 
that's uh, really terribly important, you obviously can use another person to provide you with resources that you don't have. They can have more intelligence than you have. They can have more education. They can have more right. training. Right. They can have more uh, specialty knowledge. And it's perf it would be stupid not to use other people right. to right. enhance your life. Yeah. But without sacrificing the inherent dignity, you can't use them as if they were machine. And this is one of the criticisms of uh, Herman Daly about neoliberalism is it's not only disastrous, but it's incapable That's of right. quantifying or defining or corralling or managing, managing exactly what you said, intrinsic value. It's, it can't do that. It's beyond what economics can do. I think what that leads us to now, and that this uh, this insight comes mostly from George Monbiot, who is uh, re referred to in his article by Herman Daly. And what Monbiot is talking about is intrinsic and extrinsic values. That if you're primarily evaluating yourself as a human being with extrinsic values, such as, for example, how successful are you? How much money do you have? How people see you? How people uh, recognize that, oh, yes, you have mansions, or you have five Rolls Royces, or you have this or that or the other, that this is how you recognize yourself, rather than in, in intrinsic value, which is your understanding of yourself as a human being, of value, etc. So the, the orientation makes a great deal of difference in what kind of a person you are. That um, the extrinsic value evaluator tends to be associated with performance, with oligarchy, with a sense of superiority towards other people, etc. Was an intrinsic one tends to find value in oneself without denigrating somebody else. And that, I thought, was a really very great insight. And then from that, he then looks to answer a question. How do we convince others of our point of view? And the point of view is that we've run out of well, of intrinsic values, of uh, okay. nature is, okay. is being scarce rather than yeah. being uh, abundant, etc. So, how do you do that? And what Monbiot says is something that I find very important. And he says, you don't try to convince them. Because I can already hear the voices yes. having all kinds of problems. Because in an attempt to attempt to convince them, what you do is you are willing to sacrifice your values in order to get agreement from, uh, from the others. And you get very wishy-washy kind of stuff. And he describes that as a very large part of the Democratic Party in the United States and the Labour Party in, uh, in, okay. in England. And he also says that this has been the downfall of the progressive movement is an attempt to compromise one's values, whereas the conservatives have just stood by the values and said, hey, this is where we stand, and uh, why don't you guys come over to our side? 
and they've been very, very successful in in doing that. And so I thought that that was a great insight to, as to how we proceed. He maintains that we should hold on to our values, explain them extensively, deal with criticisms of, of them. Mm-hmm. You have to have answers. What are you in favor of? What do you stand for? Not, you know, just criticism of the existing order. And, and secondly, to find those people who have not yet decided where they stand and attempt to, to convince them, but not the people who already will not change. And I thought that this, is, this has been an issue for me for a very long time as to uh, what to do, because there's a desperate need to, to make changes. And so how do you go about making changes? I want to go back to a point that uh, Daly makes about if we understand this shift from a cowboy economics to yes. a spaceship economics, whether we've convinced people or not, he says that the function of money changes. Yes. And this goes back to what you were talking about, about quotas. This, he was actually in, in the context of talking about, well, you, you just simply can't take all the oil out of the earth because you That's just right. can't do it. That's right. Or you can't take all the fish out of the sea. That's right. And so he says money can no longer be a measure of one's ability to convert natural capital into financial capital and hence to get money for nothing. Right. He says under the scarcity model... Money would have to function as what he calls ration tickets. Yes, uh, uh, that's right. A distributional with uh, fishing crabs, let's say. You don't use money to decide how many crabs you're going to fish out of the water. What is decided with a quota is this is the amount. Yeah, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. And then you use money to decide how you're going to distribute those crabs that you bought. Right. That's a perfectly uh, reasonable sort of thing. Now, there is the problem, of course, that people, uh, the the inequality of income and wealth has increased enormously. So you have to uh, not only put quotas and then have people decide how much they want to spend to get the crabs. You also have to provide people with more money for the poor and the middle class and less money for the rich, because otherwise they will be able to just grab all of the crabs. Which, that is, which is what they do now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so it's not enough to put quotas. And, and not in this article, but uh, Herman Daly speaks about the necessity of reducing the inequality of income and wealth. Well, I want, want to entertain here, uh, this is kind of my own discussion I've had with people, a, a friend of mine or an acquaintance who has uh, discussed with me the problem of socialism and he's an economist. Yes. And, and I think there's some irony to this discussion that is really pertinent to what we're talking about. So socialism, he argued, is always pushing for larger pieces of the pie. You know, there needs to be more, more for child care there needs to be more for health care and education and for black people yes yes uh, and 
And he says the problem is, uh, is that unless the pie increases, which is how much of economics works, well, you know, unless we get an increase in the size, unless we get the, the ocean to rise, everything is going to be consumed. And ironically, this is similar to the uh, steady state economy, uh, economics. It's saying, yeah, there's only so much... Uh, the problem with this kind of reasoning, which steady state is addressing, is for one, it's based on the assumption of a constant and always increasing consumption, yes. so, which daily and steady state economists are say, you know, you can't just you we can't just talk about endless production, but we at some point, and especially here in America, we we've got to start talking about ridiculous overconsumption. Yes. Americans uh, consume like. They're about six percent of the population. They no, can, they're four percent. Four percent, and they consume over sixty percent of the world's resources. Well, and, you, uh, less now than. Okay, they but did. it's yes. still yes, abs but very, it, very it's an yes, absurd margin. Yes. And so you know that has to be talked about. We we yes, the, there is no question about that, and uh, Herman Daly uh, talks about it uh, in another context where. We have to switch how, how we measure well-being. Up to now, well-being is measured by how much. Now, when economies are poor, obviously having more, if you're starving, having more food, or if you don't have transportation, having a bicycle, obviously increases your well-being. So there was no reason to distinguish an index of well-being from GDP. But now, that no longer holds. Right, and and we, we have to develop, and there have been developments, both by a certain group of economists, but also by psychologists, social psychologists, other people of uh, social indices of well-being. And we've, we've, we've addressed that already. Yeah, the, yes. o the other assumption here, which is the problem, really, is the assumption is the only solution is to get a bigger pie, to yes. make the pie bigger. No, it's and not. It's you, not. Exactly. Well, firstly, we cannot. Yes. And so we've got to work with what we have and give a certain minimum to everybody. Right. And so... And uh, that's not that difficult to accomplish. Correct. So my economist is is correct in a, in a sense. He says, well... You know, the problem with the demands of socialists or health care for all and, well, who's going to pay for that? We only have so much pie to divide up. He's correct he's in agreement with the steady state. That's right. We only have so much pie. That's right. That can be divvied right. up. That's right. We and, have indeed and, run out of pie. And, and that's <laughs> why I tend, when I criticize capitalism and offer this alternative, I don't say that the alternative is socialism. I say, what is post-capitalism and what is post-socialism? Because at least the kind of socialism that we have had up to now, yes, distributed more widely, but has also contributed to the growth of the economies. They haven't really attended to the issue of uh, steady state. It's a mistake to just say, criticize capitalism and say, well, we already have a solution with the socialists. My own sense is that we still are in the process of construction of a, a, a third alternative 
to, to which nobody through. knows. We need to start thinking in some real creative ways. Yes. Beyond just arguing over socialism or capitalism. Yes, and I think one of the ways of doing that is with taking ideas and seeing how they work in practice. Find out how these things uh, work in practice. And, Which is what and they're then doing. And they say, well, w don't you like this? What, what, what do you have as, uh, as objection to it? Which they have done and, with uh, UBI. There's been yes. uh, experiments all, all in the United right. States, in Canada, in Australia. India, yeah, uh, yes. in Finland, etc. And what they discovered is that what they expected to happen didn't. One is that they um, expected that people would become lazy, and if they had a guaranteed income, they wouldn't work. And what they discovered is not so at all. And the opposite is the case, that the people become uh, more creative uh, in terms of hobbies and all, all sorts of things, and starting businesses and what have you. Which um, is what Marx envisioned. Yes. We could just get out of this dreadful lock of just serving capitalism and, uh, you know, you would have small communities that would be free to uh, do creative activities. Yes, is, creative activities and communitarian uh, yes. ones at that without sacrificing individuality. You know, the right. individuality of art, the individuality of cooking, the individuality of a whole variety of things. Yes, I, I think that for my taste, Marx and Marxists in general are too anti-religion uh, for, for good reasons at the time, because religion at the time would put emphasis on the afterlife, that the only place where you can be happy is in the right. afterlife, right. whereas... You know, Marx so and, shut up and get back to work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> whereas Marx put emphasis on enjoyment of, of this life. Right. Uh, my own sense is that reason has its limits and that therefore uh, faith is a terribly important aspect of the human being. Depriving oneself of that is a diminution of yes. the the of yeah Herman the, Herman Daly yes. uh, makes the same appeal. He says neoliberal economics is disastrous because um, it can't address what he calls the human niche. He says which can only be grounded in ethical and religious criteria. Yes, that's you right. That, I mean you. That's right. Uh, it that's can right. only be grounded in in a sense of uh, the intrinsic value of human beings and the intrinsic na value of nature that's right. and the environment that we have. That's right, the intrinsic value. And the difficulty of how you ask people to make that transition. Yes. That's Because then we can fall into the trap of seeing these others who don't have the same ideas as we do and the same values as right. we do as inferior uh, what we claim they do to us so you know, so, um, <laughs> so alec i'm i'm going to reserve that that discussion towards the end of our our series here because that it, yes. it will all it every one of our sessions keeps coming down to how yes. yeah and you addressed it a little bit how are we going to get beyond our fixed points for next uh, time that we meet, I want us to address more in particular the issue of land and land ownership. 
So here's the example. We have many examples here in Colorado. The uh, water is a massive, massive issue. It's more important than almost anything that if you're sitting on land that has water, yes, whose water is it? Yes, yes. And um, you made the point to me a while back that if it wasn't for that, we cannot capture air. Yes, <laughs> like we can water. We would have the same issue, but it's the same thing. I mean, it how is. absurd it is that anybody should be saying, I own, I have the ownership, the exclusive ownership of this water. water. Yes, that's right. Or these minerals or this yes, gas. In, in or, my estimation, the way I would uh, suggest it is that it goes against uh, the Declaration of Independence of the Rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you can't have life if you don't yes. have access to water. And somebody who deprives uh, you of water or asks you to pay for water right. uh, is depriving you of life. Right. Y you see, that's that's very, yes. very fundamental. And, but and it's, so, it's absurd. And, and how somehow we've talked ourselves into this absurdity. And so next time Alec is going to address uh, what I mentioned first off, uh, the shifting of tax away from people, labor, and capital and onto land. Mm -hmm. And so Alec has been exploring the land tax of Henry George, which is uh, quite popular in certain circles. Most people don't know about it, but it's, it's really something that has to be a part of the picture is how, how do we how do we uh, reevaluate what it means to own land and own resources on land? And really, his argument is that those belong to the public. Those they you can't really have an absolute ownership of land. And I'm reminded of a an article in the paper where they were sweeping up uh, homeless people, and they interviewed a veteran. Yes. Who who said. You I know how too, yeah. I've I've defended this this country, and how absurd of it that I can't even have a a five by five plot to lay down on. Yes, you know That's to right. to just be to exist. That's right. So we are gonna talk about that uh, next time, and so I'm gonna close this off for now. Thank you, Alec. Thank you.